All right. If you got a Bible this morning, you want to turn to Revelation chapter 6, and uh, we're going to continue in our study in the book of Revelation. Uh, this morning, we are working through the opening of these seven seals in Revelation chapter 6. And, and if you're new this morning, or maybe you're catching us online for the very first time, uh, we've covered a lot of groundwork, and there's no way to give a, a concise summary of what we've covered, but I, but I will at least try to give you a little bit of catch-up on Revelation chapter 6 specifically. The book of Revelation is a book that we don't have to be scared of. We can actually study. God wants us to be uh, knowledgeable of the things in the book of Revelation. And, and, you know, there is kind of a stigma with this book that a lot of Christians are fearful to read this book and to study this book and would, would even say, man, we, we can't understand it. We don't really know what it, what it means. It's almost apocalyptic and... and you know, we just can't really understand it. And yet, in the very first chapter, God's Word tells us that, that if we actually read it and understand it, we'll be blessed. And so God Himself says, hey, this is a book, just like every book of the Bible, that's for us to understand. There are some things that are for us to glean. There's also a very intended audience of this book. Uh, and we'll talk more about that in just a minute. But I, I do want you to understand, it's a book that you can understand. That, that God's Word is, is consistent. You can understand the book of Revelation. Uh, you can understand all of the Bible because the Holy Spirit of God is the teacher. And, and as you study the way God tells you to study in His Word, uh, you can actually understand the Bible. And so we want to encourage you at this church, read your Bible, study your Bible. If you don't know how to study, stick around, take, take notes, pay attention to the principles that are taught and then you can take those things home and begin to work those things out for yourself. And so, and so we believe that God's Word is, is a great gift and, uh, and that He wants us to know it. And so in Revelation chapter 5, there was this creation-wide search for someone worthy to open a seven-sealed book that John saw in heaven. And, and all of creation was searched and there was no man that was found worthy to open this seven-sealed book, and after the search ended and everyone is distraught, in the midst of heaven there stood a lamb as it had been slain, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he alone was worthy to open this seven-sealed book. And what we studied several weeks ago was that as these seals begin to be opened, what happens is things begin happening, at least in the first four seals, on the earth. And, and what we concluded was, as Christ begins opening these seven seals, His judgment and His wrath during the tribulation period begins to unfold on this earth. And so, and so at this point in our study, we've already studied four seals. And, and these first four seals are unique because each of these first four seals in Revelation 6 are connected to a certain horse. And, and so just very quickly in, in review... Uh, we saw that the first seal was opened and it was announced by a beast around the throne. And this beast was, as it were, a lion. And as he, as he opened the seal, as the seal was opened by Jesus Christ, John saw a white horse. And on the earth, this white horse wasn't the Lord Jesus Christ, but it was actually the false Christ, the Antichrist, conquering this earth with a bow with no arrows. In other words, he was conquering through peace and through policy. And, and listen, he overtakes this world. He becomes the world leader uh, during this tribulation period. 
And then in, in, the, in the opening of the second seal, there's a red horse. And as we studied that red horse, we saw that, man, the devil is absolutely the, the worst at the bait and switch because he establishes his authority through a, a false peace. And then this false peace was taken during the tribulation period, okay? And so, again, man, you can't trust the devil. He's a liar. He's a murderer from the beginning. And, and he establishes what seems to be peace in this world, in this world, which is what everybody wants. And yet, when they get it from him, it's the bait and switch. And it's not true peace. It's a false peace. And now he, he gives power to take peace from this earth during the tribulation period. And then we saw the third seal open. And this third horse that, that arrives on this earth is a black horse. And what begins to happen is there's famine and there's economic collapse. And we, we read about the black horse a couple of weeks ago, and, and there's a, measure, a, a measuring out of food. Because of the economic collapse and because of the famine, food will have to be rationed out, and it's going to be horribly expensive. Like, you think eating out right now is expensive. And by the way, it is. It's horrible. It's like, man, when did a hamburger become like $12, $13? I mean, the dollar menu has ceased to exist, hasn't it? I mean, those, those days are over, by the way. It's, it's tribulation, man. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, <laughs> you're going to have to break out the big money to go out and eat, you know? And so, and so it's only going to get worse because, like, God even gave us the measure. It was like a measure of wheat for a penny. And we studied the penny out through the Bible, and the, the penny is actually a day's wages. And so just imagine working eight hours a day, ten hours a day for one meal, be horrible. And not to count what you have to provide for your family. And, and so, man, this black horse represents the famine and the economic collapse that's going to happen during the tribulation period. And then last week, we talked about the fourth horse, who is a pale horse. And, and what we saw about this fourth horse was that death and hell followed. Death was riding the pale horse. Hell followed the rider on the, on the pale horse. And a fourth of the population of the earth was killed. And, and man, we did the math last week. And we talked about, man, how many people would that be based on the population of our planet right now and based on some people possibly going up in the rapture of the church? How many people would death and hell destroy during this fourth seal? And it was like 1.75 billion people. More than, more than any war singularly, and I think Brian Call told me last week, more than all modern wars combined will be the, the, the fatality and the destruction and the devastation during this time. And, 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 and man, God's word tells us they're going to be killed with a sword and with hunger and pestilence and beasts. And, and we, we, we kind of said, okay, this is, this is horrible. There is someone that has victory over death and hell, and it's Jesus Christ. He has the keys of those things. And, 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 and again, we're talking about a future time of tribulation. But I want you to understand that even now, death and hell are a reality for us. Because, man, if you die today, your eternal destination will either be heaven or hell. And to secure your eternity, you have to know the one that's defeated death and hell. And that's the person of Jesus Christ. And so even though we're talking about a future time, there is direct devotional application for us today. And, 
And then this morning, we're going to get into the, the fifth seal. And so if you, if you open your Bible, Revelation 6, we're going to read verses 9 to 11, and, uh, and then we'll pray, and then we'll study a little bit together. So Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. It says, when he'd opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they had. And they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, does thou judge, does thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given to every one of them. And it was said to them that they should rest a little for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that they should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. Let's pray. Father, we need you this morning. God, I, in no way in my flesh can I communicate uh, the things that we need to know today from your word. God, we, we trust your Holy Spirit. We trust your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that you give us wisdom and, and help us to see, uh, man, as these things unfold on this earth and in heaven, uh, God, we, we can know you now. We can, we can have a right relationship with you now we can cement our eternity in you. And Lord, it ought to give us a burden to, to tell other people about Christ because of what we learn from these things, the, the depravity and the destruction of this world because of sin. Lord, it ought to give us an urgency to communicate the gospel fervently while we have time. And so Lord, charge your church today, equip us, Lord, challenge us, rebuke us if needed, and may we respond rightly to you. We love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so in your notes this morning, first point, number one, is the scene of this fifth seal. And if you, if you, if you need notes this morning, you can raise your hand. We'll get one of our ushers to, to grab a set. The service has started, so they're $5 now. Five, but you can give right on the app, $5. In the, okay, that's a joke. If you do need notes, raise your hand. We'll get our ushers to, to grab a set of notes. Okay, so the scene of the fifth seal. So everything that we've seen up to the first four seals is happening on the earth, and then John says that when the fifth seal was open, he saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony that they had. And, and so now we have to ask the question, where is the location of those that are slain? Where is the location of those people that were slain? And, and we'll get into all the specifics in just a second. God's word says that they are under the altar. And so the key question for us this morning is, where is this altar that John is seeing this? Is this altar on the earth or is it somewhere else? Now listen, there was certainly an altar on earth. If you read your Bible in the Old Testament, right, there was this thing called the tabernacle. It was like a mobile, uh, you know, it wasn't a mobile home, it was a mobile tent, and they, they unpacked that thing, and then they traveled, Israel traveled, and they set it back up. And it was this tent house where God met with the nation of Israel. Inside of that tabernacle would have been an inner portion, and there would have been an altar there. And, and later, during Solomon's reign, when the temple, the permanent house, so to speak, was built in the Old Testament, there would have been an altar in that as well. And it was an altar that, that, that Israel would have offered sacrifices upon to be right with their God. Okay, so Hebrews 8, verses 1 to 5. God confirms that, man, all these earthly altars in the tabernacle and the temple were true altars. Okay, look at verse 1. It says, now the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens... 
a minister of the sanctuary and of the, of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. And he's talking about Christ. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. And here's the kicker, verse 5, who serve unto the example and shadow of what? Heavenly things. Okay, wait a second. You mean to tell me that that earthly tabernacle, that earthly temple, and that earthly priesthood was just an example and shadow of something else? Yes, absolutely. Okay, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. And listen, if you just do a little comparison of, of Scripture with Scripture, and you go back to Exodus 25, when Moses instituted the tabernacle, and the priesthood, and the offerings, and the altar, and all these different things, he didn't do that out of his own imagination, he didn't do it out of his own reasoning. God actually gave him a pattern to follow. And the pattern was the heavenly tabernacle and the heavenly altar. Look at Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9. So this instruction is going to Moses, and he says, Let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them according to all that I show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. Verse 40. And look that thou make them after their pattern, which was showed thee in the mount. And, and many of you know the story, right? Moses went up to the mountain of God, and in that mountain, God gave him understanding of the heavenly tabernacle, and the heavenly altar, and the heavenly priesthood, and all the earthly things were representative of that. Here's the point I'm trying to make. There was an earthly altar. But there is a heavenly altar. There is one in heaven. And, and listen, right now there's not a temple on this, uh, on this earth, but, but that third temple in Jerusalem will be most definitely in place during the tribulation period. But I want you to understand that even though there are physical altars on this earth that God has commissioned, they're only representative of the true tabernacle and the altar in heaven. And so listen, the altar that John is seeing with the souls of them that have been killed, it's in heaven. It's in heaven. It's in the third heaven. And if that third heaven thing confuses you a little bit, just do a little Bible study. Our sky is the first heaven. Outer space is the second heaven. The third heaven is, is, is called the very throne room of God. And listen, there is an altar in heaven. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 15 tells us that Christ actually entered into that Holy of Holies after his death, burial, and resurrection. Look at verse 11. But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered once into the holy place. God himself, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, for our redemption, entered into the holy of place, the true tabernacle. And it says that he entered in, by the way, with his own blood. And, and, and 
The blood is on the altar. You need to understand that you have eternal redemption in Jesus Christ because His blood became the propitiation for our sin. Verse 13, if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled, sprinkling the unclean sanctify it to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. And for, for this cause, he's the mediator of the New Testament. You see, his shed blood is what mediates this New Testament, because it's a testament, in his blood. And so listen, this heavenly altar would have been the altar upon which Christ deposited his own blood for our redemption. I don't know why you're not more excited about that. I mean, do you guys remember the story after Christ, you know, God, and listen, we don't have time, but if you are a good student of the Bible, you need to do some timeline study of what happened at the cross of Calvary and the three days and the three nights that followed and where Christ was. And then when Christ ascended, and if you remember the story in John 20, when Christ ascended, well, Mary was there and, and it says in, in verse 17, Jesus said to her, touch me not. For I am not yet ascended to my Father. And so after the resurrection, he does appear to one person, and then he ascends to his Father, and the very same afternoon, he actually comes back, back down and reveals himself to his disciples. And when he reveals himself to his disciples, he says, hey, you can actually touch me. You can't touch me before, but you can touch me now. Why? Well, well listen. In that narrow window of time, I believe the Lord Jesus Christ ascended into the Holy of Holies. And he left something there that purchased our eternal redemption. It was his blood. And, and, so, and so, again, man, John, John records in verse 19, the first day of the week, the doors were shut. This is the same evening which, which a couple of people saw him after his resurrection the same evening, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst, and he said, Peace be unto you. In Luke 24 and verse 39, he says, Behold my hands and my feet, that is, it is I myself. He says, Handle me, where before he said, Touch me not. Now he says, Handle me, and he says, For a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. By the way, he said flesh and bone, not flesh and blood. Why? Well, because the blood is in a very secure location. And, and, so, and so these saints, I say all that to say, we need to understand there is a heavenly altar. And man, listen, in the tribulation period, there are people that are going to be martyred. We'll get to that in a second. But where does their soul go after, they, after they're martyred? Well, according to the Word of God, it goes under the altar. Why does it go under the altar? Because that's where the blood is. That's where the blood atonement is. And so, and so that's the location of the altar. And then secondly, listen, I want us to see the identity of these, these people that are slain. Because John, as his fifth seal is opened, he looks under the altar, and what he sees is the souls of them that were slain. In other words, these people were, were killed. And, 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 and we'll get to 
why they were killed and how they were killed in just a second. But what I want you to understand is that what John sees is souls. He sees a soul. Actually, he sees numerous souls. So let me give you a little bit of, of, of understanding of what happens. We, no one likes to talk about death. I know, I know it's, like a, it's one of those taboo subjects, but, but God's Word has plenty to say about it. As a matter of fact, God tells us exactly what happens when a person dies. Genesis 35, verses 18 and 19, concerning Rachel in the Old Testament, it says in verse 18, it came to pass as her soul was in departing. For she what? For she died. And she called his name Benoni. That's, that's her son that she was giving birth to as she's dying. But his father called him Benjamin. And Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, which is Bethlehem. And so the, the Bible tells us in Genesis 35 that her soul was in departing. And then she died. And then she was buried. And, and so you know from that passage that her body was put in the ground. But her, her soul went somewhere else. In other words, that death, death is not the end. Death is not annihilation. Death is not, man, once I die, that's it. Lights out. It's all over. No, actually, that's not true. As a matter of fact, your body's going to go in the ground, but your soul is going to go somewhere. It will depart somewhere. Okay, and, and we got a lot more to say about that in just a minute. But here's what I want you to understand. When John sees these souls, these are people that weren't killed by famine. They weren't killed by economic collapse. They weren't killed by pestilence. But man, listen, they were killed by men during the time of tribulation. Uh, and, and again, listen, I got some weird... Got some weird thoughts on this. You know, I mentioned earlier that during the tribulation period, that third temple will be in existence. And listen, there will be a most holy place on this earth, just like there was in the Old Testament. And God tells us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that this man of sin, the Antichrist, will actually position himself in this earthly tabernacle, in this earthly temple. Let me show it to you. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 to 4. It says, let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Those are all terms for the Antichrist, who opposeth and exalted himself above all that's called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he's God. And so during the tribulation, that third temple will be in existence there's going to be a dude that will actually have the audacity to go sit in the house of God as God, the Antichrist. Now, Matthew 24, verses 15 to 19, a little more information. Matthew says, when you therefore see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, check this out, stand in the holy place. Whosoever readeth, let him understand, and let those that be in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop come not down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe to them that are with child and that give suck in those days. And so, and so listen, during that tribulation period, man, that man of sin will position himself in the very temple of God. 
And there's going to come a point during that trib where he actually stands up. And, and what he does when he stands, well, there's a lot, of, a lot of things we could talk about. But here's what I know. That, that during that earthly temple, during the trib, and during that man of sin's reign over this earth, it's quite possible that there are going to be people that realize who he is and what he's done and they're going to reject his authority, and they're going to hold fast to God's word, and the reality is, because of that, they're going to be killed. Possibly even in sacrifice to him. That's whacked out. That's crazy when you think about that. Look at Revelation 12, verses 10 through 11. And again, man, we're going to, we're going to land it here in just a second, but, but you've got to get all these pieces together. These, these people... The souls that John is seeing are people that are slain. They're killed because of the Antichrist and his regime. Look at verse 10, Revelation 12, verse 10. I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them, day, excuse me, accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him, the accuser, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony... And they love not their lives unto the death. And so, and so these people that we're studying in this fifth seal, and here's the key in your notes, we say all that to say that these people are nothing more than tribulation saints. They are people who are martyred during the tribulation period, and they overcome by the blood of the Lamb, but not just the blood of the Lamb. The word of their testimony, and they love not their lives to the death. Revelation 20, verses 4 and 5. Check this out. Again, a, a companion verse. Uh, it, John says, I saw thrones, and then that sat on them, judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of them that were, my goodness, man, beheaded for the witness of Jesus. And for the word of God, those, those same things keep showing up. The witness of Jesus and the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had they received the mark in their forehead and their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years, but the rest of the dead lived not until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. So listen, in your Bible, what you have is three groups of saints. You have Old Testament saints, and the way they were right with God is they kept what God required of them at that time. It was faith plus works. Fulfilling animal sacrifices and all those different things that were required. You have church age saints, and the way that they're redeemed is just by faith in the finished work of Christ. It's faith alone and Christ alone. But during the tribulation period, listen, there are people that will be redeemed through the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. In other words, what they did and didn't do. And listen, the people that actually live right will be rewarded with decapitation. So the method of their death that John is seeing these souls, the reason that they got there was because they got their head chopped off. And you say, how barbaric is that? Yeah, it's extremely barbaric. But what's interesting is, again, a, a close consideration of the authority of God's word shows us that even in the first century, 
That was the method of death for those that professed Christ. Let me prove it to you. Matthew chapter 14, verse 10, the Bible tells us about a man named John the Baptist. And there was a Roman ruler named Herod that had got himself stuck in a sticky situation. And to please other people, he sent, the Bible says, and beheaded John in the prison. John was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. He was the one announcing, this is the Messiah, this is the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. By the way, it was a Roman ruler that took his head. In Acts chapter 12 and verse 2, a different Herod martyrs James the Apostle. It says in in verse 2, now by that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hand to vex certain of the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. The first century method of dealing with believers was beheading them. Paul even mentions the risk that some of his ministry partners faced in helping him propagate the gospel. Romans 16 and verse 4, he's talking about Priscilla and Aquila. Look what he says concerning them. Who have laid, who, who for my life have laid down their own necks. Well, you lay your neck down in a guillotine before you lose your head. And Paul said, listen, the, the ministry is hazardous. And yet there were people willing to lay down their own neck for the gospel's sake. We won't even lay down our cell phone for the gospel's sake. We won't lay down our Netflix subscription, our YouTube addiction, our porn addiction, anything else. We'll lay down our time, our talent, or our treasure for the gospel. But there were some people in the first century that felt like the gospel was worth their life. Paul, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6, Paul at the end of his life, the end of his ministry, he says, I am now ready to be offered. And the time of my departure is at hand. And, and by the way, Paul was shortly thereafter beheaded. And so I want you to understand that during the first century, the method of death for believers that rebelled against a religious and political system for the sake of the gospel was decapitation. And can I just tell you that in the 21st century, the method of death under the Antichrist regime through Roman power will also be Decapitation. And that's horrible. And it is horrible. Anybody that thinks that this world is getting better is foolish, by the way. You will only get worse. And what happened in the first century will absolutely show up again in the 21st century as we near the end of these things. And so the the identity of these these people, these souls that John sees, they are tribulation saints. And And then thirdly, we need to see the reason for which they were slain. And God's Word tells us two things specific about them. They were slain, number one, for the Word of God. And and listen. Man, listen. The Word of God is worth giving your life to and for. But most Laodicean Christians won't even bat an eye at that statement. We don't understand and value and appreciate and read and study and love God's word, but man, there was a group of people that did. 
And they were willing to go to the grave and die for it. Man, they held that book in high regard and they hold it close to their hearts. So much so that it wasn't give me liberty or give me death. Give me the word of God. Give me death. By the way, whatever you love is what you're really truly willing to die for. And these martyrs laid down their lives. You can study church history and you can see men throughout history that gave their life so that we can have what we have today in an English Bible. And in the future tribulation period, there will be martyrs that will lay down their life for the book because the Word of God means so much to them. They love not their life even to the death. The truth is, as Laodiceans, truthfully, we all know this, man, we love ourselves more than we love God. We love pleasures more than we love God. And we prove it every week. We prove it every single week. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. The Bible says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, young people, disobedient to parents. Your disobedience is rooted in the fact that you love you more than anybody else, including God. False accusers, incontinent, fierce despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Well, I love God, but I love myself more. The measure of of my love to God is is certainly less than myself and and the pleasures that I have and the the things that I want to pursue in my life and the hobbies and the sport. And listen, whatever, I'm not trying to get legalistic. The point is, You'll die for what you love. What you're willing to die for reveals what you'll love. And I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure there's too many people in our culture of Christianity that would lay their neck down for that book. Number two, the reason they were killed was because of the testimony they held. Now this one's going to get close to the corn so to speak, right here. Revelation chapter 20 reveals the specifics of their testimony. So so again, we've read this passage, but can we look at it with fresh eyes and, and see, here's what God's testimony of their testimony is. John says, I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. Check this out. And they had not worshiped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their forehead or in their hands. They lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So their testimony consisted of who they worshipped and who they did not. And so does yours. So does yours. So does mine. My testimony consists of who truly I worship. And the Bible says they didn't worship the beast, neither his image. By the way, as we get further into this study, you'll see that because they didn't worship the beast in his image, they had no food, they had no water, they were outcast, they were neglected, they were running for their lives. But man, they had a testimony that they worshipped the right person. They worshipped God. You say, well, I come to church every week. That doesn't mean you worship anything. 
genuine worshipers worship something and they, they, they either worship God or they worship themselves or they worship the devil. Listen, you're worshiping something. And the testimony of these people is they didn't worship the beast. They worshiped God. Their testimony consisted of who they worshiped. Number two, their testimony consisted of what they did with their body and what they didn't do with their body. Hello? So the Bible says that they didn't receive his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. In other words, what you do with your body matters. And and you don't have to like it. What you do with your body reveals who you worship. And so because of that, they were rewarded with decapitation. I want you to go back to Revelation chapter 1. As we began this study many, many, many months ago, we were introduced to John at the opening of this epistle. It says in Revelation 1, verses 1 and 2, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel and his servant John, who bear record, listen, of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting that those two things keep showing up? The word of God and the testimony of Christ. The word of God and the testimony of Christ. You see it again in verse 9. I, John, who am your brother and companion in tribulation in the kingdom, and the patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle called Patmos, for the word of God, for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So that, that shows me, and it proves, that John, here's the key in your notes, John is a type or picture of the tribulation saint in the book of Revelation. That's who John is. Now, devotionally, yeah, we could talk about how he's maybe a picture of the believer, picture of the church, all those different things. But what John literally just said is, I'm a companion in tribulation, and so it shows us that the book of Revelation is primarily about the tribulation period. It's for tribulation saints, and it reveals the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's who these people are. Man, it ought to challenge us to ask ourselves, do we even have a testimony? Do we love the Word of God? Would we be at risk of being found guilty and possibly persecuted because of our walk with God? Okay, you got 10 minutes? Okay, all right, one of you does. The rest of you can leave if you don't have it. All right, verse 10. I know you're looking at your notes and you're like, bro, it's like 10 after. There's no way you're finishing. I promise we'll finish. Look at verse 10. Let's get the rest of your, your notes filled in. Number two, I want to I show you the saying of the soul. So we, we've seen this scene, this, this heavenly altar. There are souls that are there that have been beheaded for the, the word of God and for the testimony of Christ. Look at verse 10. It says, when John sees these souls, it says, they cried with a loud voice, saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, does thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? John sees these souls. He hears them crying out. Just for the record, these souls weren't sleeping. Some people believe that, hey, when you die, your soul just goes to sleep until the resurrection. That's not true, according to the Word of God. Your body goes into the ground, and then your soul has a destination. Now, we're going to look at Luke chapter 16. And as we look at Luke chapter 16, there's another passage that shows us the reality of eternal life. This is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And listen, you need to understand, this is not 
a parable. And anybody that says it's a parable, no offense, is wrong. Because God's word tells you when he's teaching in parables. And he doesn't tell you that this is a parable. And so in Luke chapter 16, here's the story. Many of you know this story, but man, it's clear and precise what happens when someone dies. Again, in an Old Testament context. Luke 16 verse 19, it says, There was a certain rich man that was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he fared sumptuously every day. I mean, he was eating high on the hog. Well, he probably wasn't eating high on the hog because he probably Jewish, but he was eating high on the cow, okay? Thank God for grace, amen? Let's get some bacon at lunch. All right. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. This is gross. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried... Verse 23, and in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the finger, his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm tormented in this flame. And again, you guys aren't listening fast enough, so we don't have time for an exposition of Luke 16. Here's what you need to know from this passage. Number one, a soul has a body that can be seen. According to the authority of God's word, a soul is visible. A soul has a body that can be seen. Number two, a soul has a voice that can be heard. And in the case of Revelation chapter 6, it's a voice that's crying out for vengeance. And in Luke chapter 16, it's a voice crying out in torment. Number three, a soul can experience comfort or torment. And again, in this passage, listen, Lazarus is comforted and the rich man is in torment. He is in the flame. Number four, a soul has fingers, right? This, this rich man is begging Abraham to let Lazarus dip his finger in water to cool his tongue. Listen, I played a lot of basketball growing up, high school, played intramurals through college, played for a few years after college. Can I just tell you, man, when you're parched and just dying for a drink, the thing that you don't do is go over to the water fountain and just <sighs> quenched. No, man, you're chugging like a Gatorade bottle the size of your leg. You're like, you're, you're famished, man. You need <laughs> electrolytes. You need nutrients. You need something to quench this man is in so much torment that one drop of water would be relief. And he's asking, hey, hey, can you send Lazarus and let him dip his finger? Well, if a soul is just like some abstract thing, he doesn't have fingers. He doesn't have a voice. He doesn't have a body. He says, hey, can, can he dip his finger in water and cool my tongue? A soul has a tongue. You know that because these souls are talking. By the way, a soul can remember. Remember in Revelation chapter 6, these souls that are under the altar remember that they were killed. And they're, they're asking God, when are you going to get vengeance for us? And by the way, God doesn't rebuke them. He's just like, hang tight. It's coming. Man, the rich man remembers 
He has five brethren who are headed to the same place he is. And he's begging Abraham, hey, can you send somebody back? And it's not in your notes, but can I just tell you, man, souls pray. There's people in hell today praying. Just like that rich man. And they won't be answered. There's people in hell today full of regret and resentment and remembrance. Because it's not annihilation. It's torment because of their sin. Now listen, if you're a student of the Bible, you know that at the resurrection of Christ, Abraham's bosom and those Old Testament saints were raptured up, they were caught up in heaven because the blood atonement was made for their sin in the Old Testament. And so today, if you die, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, that if we are absent from this body as a believer in Christ, you don't go to Abraham's bosom. The Bible says you're present with the Lord. And you'll ever be with the Lord. And man, that, that's where you will immediately go as this body dies. Man, your soul will depart and be with the Lord in heaven. And that ought to give us comfort and assurance unless you don't know Christ. And it should give you cause of concern. Number three, the suits of these souls. And, and again, we're going to go fast because we're out of time. I'm trying to get you to listen fast, but you're not doing it. So look, the suits of these souls. The Bible says in verse 11 that white robes were given to every one of them. And when you study this thing of white robes, Throughout Revelation, it, it takes you back to Revelation chapter 3, the church at Sardis, for instance. Those overcomers were promised to be clothed in white. By the way, Sardis literally means red ones. It was the fifth church that we studied. And it was a time of tremendous bloodshed historically, but again, prophetically, it connects right to this fifth seal of a time of tremendous bloodshed of the saints who through their martyrdom will be clothed in white robes. You see it again in Laodicea in, in Revelation 3 and verse 18. You see it in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, verse 13 through 17, that these that are martyred are given white robes. And, and you say, what is that all about? Well, well robes in the Bible were the, were the garment of the priesthood. And so, and so, get this key in your notes and, and we'll be done here in just a second. Look, the, the, the suits that these souls are given are for their service in the millennium. And again, you could go back to Exodus 28, the entire chapter. Man, Aaron and his sons were, were, were clothed in robes in these holy garments so that they could minister to God in the priest's office. And if you go back to Revelation 7, man, these people that are arrayed in these white robes, they're in God's temple, according to verse 15, and they're serving God day and night. And we could talk about how all that shakes out, but here's what I know, man, what they're clothed with gives them the capacity to serve, even in the millennium. And then the last point is this, the stillness of their souls. And it was said unto them that they should rest a little season until their fellow servants and their brethren that they should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. And man, that's a sober way to end this fifth seal. But, but as John sees this fifth seal open and he sees the souls of these people that have been slain as bad as it is, the truth is there's, there's more on the way. Because, because, because John is told hey, your fellow servants and your brethren, they're going to be killed 
just like you were. So, so rest, for a, rest for a minute until all of this is fulfilled. And then God's vengeance is coming. Man, the Lord's going to repay. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. So man, what can we, what can we learn from these, from these martyrs in this fifth seal? I think the first, thing, the first thing that we can learn is, number one, you don't want to be in the tribulation period. And the way you secure that is you secure it now by a decision to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's a conscious decision that you make that His death on the cross, His burial, and His resurrection is sufficient for your sin and for mine. And you have to come to that realization personally and receive that gift by faith alone. Christ, I'm asking you to save me from my sin because I'm a sinner. And listen, if you've done that, your eternity is secure in Christ. You say, well, I'm going to wait till I see these things unfold. And that'll mean that what you're saying is really true. And then I'll get saved. And the Bible actually says you won't. Because if you reject a clear presentation of the gospel now, God is going to give you a spirit of delusion then. Because you've already rejected him. You've already rejected him. So, so one, you have to ask yourself, am I saved? Is my soul secure in Christ? Number two, what is my testimony? And do I love his word? And man, if I don't get anything else out of Revelation chapter 6 and that fifth seal, here are some people that had a right walk with God according to his word. And their testimony was, Here's who I worship. Here's to whom I yield my body. And man, we ought to be able to be challenged by that, right? We, we ought to understand that true worship will manifest itself in how we yield our body to whomever service that we're truly worshiping. And for the child of God, man, you can, you can choose. You can be saved and still worship this world. You can be saved and still worship your flesh. You can worship the devil. Man, you can be a holy instrument that God can use for his glory. But that's a decision you have to make. That's a yielding that you have to yield in response to God's word. And so let's be challenged with those things. Let's, let's bow our heads. We'll pray very quickly and get us out of here. God, thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, in this place, God, that, that you, through your Holy Spirit, give us exactly what we need.